and welcome to Vertiguys. I'm Eric. I'm Sean. And we're the Vertiguys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. And today we are covering the first, is it, it's the first 23%, not quite the first <laughs> quarter, of the Sandman story arc, The Kindly Ones. That's right. This is the first three issues of The Kindly Ones, which will be not the final story arc, of the Sandman, but the climactic story arc of the Sandman. So in a way, this is uh, 19 issues out, the beginning of the end. <laughs> oh, okay, so are you saying that the last story arc of Sandman is only six issues? Yes. Okay. Well, this one is not six issues, not nine issues, not 12 issues, but 13 issues plus, what do you call it, a B story that ran in something else. Yeah, this is a big one. It's a tale that grew in the telling a little bit, and we sort of talked about the fact that Gaiman didn't expect the series to run this long, that he got carried away telling many, many stories that he wanted to tell, and as a result, this story is a little bigger than it was expected to be. This was sort of going to follow on the footsteps of The Doll's House, and so we're going to see the return of a lot of characters and concepts from The Doll's House. Oh, well, that's good, because that was a pretty fun story. Yeah, but I think... Oh, you know what? I was thinking of a game of you. It would be better if it, was, <laughs> if it was a game of you. But it'll be good to revisit that. We haven't seen Rose Walker since The Doll's House. Not really, right? Right, I don't think so. And Damon has ended up doing a pretty good job here of incorporating elements, uh, not just from that story, and, but from all over the series, and really tying it all together with this story arc. That said, it does result in a story arc that's 13 issues long. Yeah, okay, so let's jump in, shall we? Instead of starting with Sandman number 57, we're going to start with Vertigo Jam number one. Yeah, this is The Castle from Vertigo Jam number one, written by Neil Gaiman, art by Kevin Nolan, and colors by Daniel Vazo. This is basically just a now, sort of promotional short to sell us on the concept of the Sandman and what the series was about. So I wrote down Sandman number 57, and then I wrote down cover, and then I wrote... Are you fucking kidding me? Where's the fucking cover? <laughs> and then I realized that this isn't Sandman number 57, so I said, fuck it, and decided not to read it. No, I'm kidding. I did read it, but I did say fuck it and decide not to take notes on it. Okay. So. Um, There's not a ton here that we need to follow the story, and in fact, we're going to see sort of a repetition of most of this material. Yeah, I was... I, did notice that, but everything, basically everything in this also happens in Sandman number 57. Okay, so we open on our hero being eaten by faceless women ridden by wolves. Not riding wolves, that would be too easy. Yeah, and they're faceless, and when he reaches to push them away, his hand goes through one of their heads, and it comes out all wet, and their heads are full of something other than brains, and it's really freaky, and he says, There's a moment of fear in the returning to sleep. A hesitation. There are darknesses beyond the curtain of waking, and the shadow plays clutch at my heart. Too late. I'm gone. Yeah, I liked this line. Although this is painful and unpleasant, it is not horrifying. Oh, he's talking about being chewed on by the women. Right. It's not horrifying yet when he's just being chewed on. What's it's not horrifying? horrifying until he sticks his hand through one's head and finds it's full of goop. Right. That's, that's where it crosses the line for him. But yeah, he's afraid to go back to sleep because of the dream, but then he falls asleep anyway. Yeah. I also want to mention that when we see our man here, we can kind of make out his uh, his hair color and skin tone, but he's 
only seen in very long shot, and he's got his hand up between his face and the camera, so details about him are deliberately obscured. Uh, I disagree. I think we can clearly see enough about him to know that this is John Constantine. Do you think? Sorcerer and two-bit crook. Or maybe two-bit sorcerer and major crook. <laughs> uh, no, I do not think. Okay. That would actually explain a lot, though. Like, <laughs> there's a bit coming up where everybody has mistaken him for a friend of Morpheus, and when they meet Morpheus, Morpheus just says, no, I don't know this guy. Like, that's exactly how Constantine would be greeted in the dreaming. <laughs> yeah, no, that seems true. <laughs> like, <laughs> Morpheus would just be like, I just want to pay and get rid of this motherfucker as soon as possible. Also, if it were Constantine, that would truly make this a vertigo jam. Yeah. So he finds himself back in the Dreaming, and now Lucian is giving him a tour of the Dreaming. Lucian begins by talking about how important librarians are. And even though we're kind of laughing at Lucian for boasting a little bit, Neil Gaiman has been very public about his love of libraries. The Library of Dream is the largest library there never was. I'm sure all your books are in here. What's that you say? You haven't written any books? Of course you have. Here's one. It's called The Best-Selling Romantic Spy Thriller I Used to Think About on the Bus That Would Sell a Billion Copies and Mean I'd Never Have to Work Again. Not exactly the catchiest of titles, is it? Let's go outside. I like that bit. So Lucian runs into Merv, Merv Pumpkinhead, and they have a conversation here where they briefly recap Morpheus' imprisonment. Remember, this comic is intended to promote the series. It's for people not really familiar with the canon. So they're basically establishing Morpheus got captured, now he's back rebuilding the Dreaming. The boss was locked up in a glass box in a guy's basement for the best part of this century. Naked as a jaybird and all alone. You should have seen this place. Scratch that. You wouldn't have wanted to see it. I mean, we're talking a real mess. You can call me Merv. Me and my guys, we do all the real work around here. I mean, next time you have a dream, give some thought to who painted the sky. Anyway, Merv says he has real work to do, so he sends Lucian off. The next that we encounter is Nuala. And, yeah, we have a, a big chunk of the page here taken up with a large piece of art of... Yeah, they actually basically do this on every page of the tour. We'll have a few panels of conversation with whichever denizen of the dreaming that we're meeting, and then the sort of bottom right corner of the page is a wide shot of the fantastic environment that this is going on in. Yeah, I guess you're right. That does happen over and over. But she's in the throne room, and she is standing on a tiny ladder in order to dust a bust that is adorning one of the walls. And it's just, she looks kind of so mundane and normal against this backdrop of this gigantic throne room that it's kind of funny. Yeah, she's selling a lot about her character through body language here. She sort of starts out the conversation half-hidden behind a door. Anyway, she tells us that she's a fairy, she used to be prettier, but she lost the magic that made that happen. She was a gift given to Morpheus, and now she keeps the throne room clean, even though she hasn't asked to, because she feels like she needs to do something. And I'm not homesick at all, and I don't miss fairy at all. I really don't. So now Matthew flits up to Lucian and introduces himself. Basics about Matthew. He's the raven. He hangs out with Eve when he's not hanging out with the boss, and he really hopes he doesn't die again. Next up, Abel introduces himself and his gargoyle Goldie. He's explaining who he and Cain are. He stops to sob his way through Love Thy Neighbor as he mentions that Cain lives next door to him. And then Cain shows up and pushes him off the balcony. Because that's the kind of thing that Cain does. Oops. 
Now Morpheus interrupts the tour, pointing out that the dreamer, the point of view character, or perhaps you, the reader, is not, in fact, his guest. Lucian, what exactly are you doing? I'm showing your guest around the palace and its environs, my lord. Ah, my guest. Yes, lord. Does this look like my guest to you, Lucian? Ah, oh dear. Well, no matter. So you have shown a dreamer the castle. It will do no harm. And have you learned anything from your visit to my palace, mortal dreamer? Would you like to stay longer? After all, there are a thousand thousand other sights to see here in the dreaming, and many things to learn. Morpheus offers to show the dreamer more of the castle, but now he is hearing a shrill bell, which turns out to be his wake-up call from the hotel. I know I wanted to carry on sleeping. I don't remember why anymore. Some kind of weird dream. I don't even remember what it was now. Oh well, it couldn't have been that important. It was only a dream, after all. Okay, so that's a quick little introduction to a bunch of the characters around the palace. It serves very much the same purpose as the scenes we're about to get in 57, establishing the characters around the palace. It's a fine hook for the series if you've never read it, telling you that there are a bunch of weird characters that hang out in the dreaming. Yeah. But not really essential. I do kind of like the art in it better than in 57. Okay. So... I'm kind of glad that we have those pages rendered in an art style that's more acceptable to me. With nothing further ado, that brings us to Sandman number 57, The Kindly Ones, 1. Written by Neil Gaiman, drawn by Mark Hempel, with colors by Danny Vazo. Cover is by Dave McKeon. Yeah, and the cover portrays, it looks like some little figurines of women with, like, ribbons of fortune cookie fortunes wrapped around them. Yeah, the writing here is in German, and I asked a German speaker what it said, and it seems to be mostly gibberish, at least as long as you can only read the half of it that's around the front of the paper dolls. Yeah, so let's jump into page one here, and let's take this opportunity to talk about this art. That's a good idea. This story is mostly, if not entirely, drawn by Mark Hempel, and it's a very thick black line style, a lot of close-ups, a lot of straight-on looks at characters. Yeah, to me it seems... I guess it's not that it's not detailed, but it just seems kind of abstract. It is kind of a simplified art style. It boils the characters down to their sort of most essential traits. I can see how that's a good way to bring in, you know, dozens of characters into this story who were all introduced in different art styles and sort of unify them all together, unify one style to tell this story in, in which everybody's recognizable. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily lend itself to the feel of epic world-shaking events. Right. So, it sort of reminds me, everybody sort of looks like the cover of an 80s album. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's kind of Wall Street. Kind of a promotional art feel to it to you? Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's a good way of putting it. It also... It's vaguely reminiscent of Sam Keith, even though I really like Sam Keith, and this is kind of the opposite. Mm, okay. The way that proportions are distorted in mm. order to make characters more expressive. Okay, yeah. Is Sam Keith-like, although the lack of detail isn't really. Let's go ahead and jump into the plot here. We open on the Hecate. And we open on some very meta dialogue. Is it ready yet? Are you done? Nearly. There we go. There we are, all ready for you to make into something wonderful. And she's holding a ball of yarn. 
Right, now, we have here the Hecate, one is young and beautiful, one is middle-aged and maternal, and one is ancient. And ugly. Sure. Well, I mean, you're, you, you said that one is young and beautiful. I thought you were going to complete the contrast, the juxtaposition. Well, I didn't want to be too judgy. She's a fictional, mystical creature. I, I mean, she is sort of the concept of mean old witch. <laughs> now, we only see one character per panel, which is kind of an interesting effect for the Hecate. Leaves ambiguous whether there's truly three of them or just the one. Well, that's an interesting point. Anyway, they've got this yarn all ready to start knitting. A thread of a life. Yeah, and the mother is saying that she doesn't know what she'll make out of it, but one possibility is a fisherman's special sweater, which I liked. <laughs> because, yeah, everybody knows that you have to have one of those special sweaters to have a fisherman. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have to have a really warm sweater. Do you remember the Irish Spring commercials with the fishermen? I don't. Okay. I remember the Clancy Brothers. Well, they, they <laughs> had great sweaters, too, but they weren't fishermen. No, there was this Irish Spring commercial, and it had, like, a dude, and he was in one of those, like, cable-knit sweaters. Okay. And he's, like, working on the boat and, like, getting hit with, like, seawater and fish guts all day. And so, like, at the end of the day, he, like, needs to wash, you know? Right, yeah. And it just, like, I like, I like the in inherent, like, question of this commercial, which is, like, are you stinky from working on a fishing boat all day? <laughs> and it's like, well, no, not really. <laughs> My life does not resemble this man's life at all. I'll still buy some Irish Spring, though, because I'm Irish, and I want that to be reflected in my soap choice. That's standard commercial technique, though. Like, we, we see a character, and the scenario of this commercial is this is a character who really needs a strong soap. Now, you, you should buy it, because you jog in the morning. <laughs> right. No, yeah, it's, it's like, this guy's been out on a fucking fishing boat all day. If it's good enough for him, it's good enough for your Dorito stank ass. <laughs> We're way off topic. Wash your motherfucking body before your special sweatshirt melts. <laughs> but we're way off topic here. Mother has some more meta dialogue. I can't say that I'm entirely certain, my popsy, but it's a fine yarn and I don't doubt it'll suit. They're talking about the thread, but this is also Gaiman talking about finally writing the end of the story. It's a fine yarn. I'm glad you're here to tell us these things. <laughs> the fuck am I supposed to do now? <laughs> I just sort of shut down the podcast <laughs> The uh, crone makes tea for the others. She says she is not a fan of beginnings. She prefers endings. She says you know where you stand with an ending, right? Yeah. 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 They talk about how every thread that they make is unique, and yet everybody complains about theirs. While she's making the tea, she asks what everyone would like with theirs. She says... We've got ginger snaps, Florentines, sponge cake, and fortune cookies. And, well, I never, there's a mouse in the trap. After the ginger snaps, I'll be bound. And the maiden says, I'll have a ginger snap, please. I'll take a fortune cookie, I think, my petal. The mother says, and the crone says, then I'll have the mouse. Now, the maiden reads the fortune cookie so the mother can focus on the knitting. And it says, a king will forsake his kingdom. Life and death will clash and fray. The oldest battle begins once more. The oldest battle begins once more. So maybe that's what's going to happen in this story. And they mention that they've heard this fortune before. At this point, Crone declares that that's enough and orders the mother to cut off the thread. Yeah, she just started knitting a, a minute ago. Well, she's got kind of a tea cozy here. Oh, okay. She's done quick work. It's not going to be a special sweater. 
I rather like this one. I thought maybe it could be a little longer. You're too soft, both of you. Much too soft. All good things, eh? All good things. Got to finish sometime. Snip. Turn the page and we are in Lyda Hall's house. Yeah, and Lyda is freaking out because there is sand in her son Daniel's bed. Yes, baby Daniel, who is now toddler Daniel, has managed to get sand in his bed. And I don't think it's the mess that she's concerned about. It's the idea that this might be mystical sand. Yeah, she's concerned about Daniel and weird stuff happening around Daniel. We'll recap who Lyda is and what's special about her and baby Daniel in a minute. It's going to come up in a comic book. Suffice it to say for now that she has experience with sand and with men and with sand men. <laughs> sand people? Yeah. She hates out, out beyond Tachi Station. <laughs> she hates sand. Now, Lida's friend Carla talks about how babies get into all kinds of things and doesn't really understand why Lida's so upset here. Do you think that Carla and Lida are supposed to be a romantic couple? I don't think so. Carla is mentioned as spending the night once things go wrong and then she stops spending the night. Okay. At first I thought she was the babysitter, but after we see that the babysitter is actually somebody else, it occurred to me that she might be Lida's girlfriend. Now, Carla wants ice cream, and once she gets baby Daniel on her side, it's pretty much a foregone conclusion. So they go out for ice cream. Yeah, and on the way, they run into a guy, sort of a hobo-looking dude, but he's got a, an arm full of flowers, and he's passing them out. Hey, diddle diddle, the cat and the fiddle, here's a flower for a pretty lady. And he gives it to a woman in a little black dress, prompting an angry look from her boyfriend. Now, this guy kneels down to offer Daniel a flower, and Lyda freaks out on him. You don't touch my son! Understand me? Yeah, and the guy... Oh, it's very, it's very affecting. He actually drops all his flowers and sits down on the curb and cries. Now, Carla jumps in. You didn't have to do that. He's just a harmless crazy. I've seen him down here a dozen times, giving out flowers or begging for change. Lyda, you're shaking. I am? Maybe I'm just under pressure. They get to the ice cream place, and Carla asks about the job offer from one Eric. Now, this Eric is no better a representative of a name than the last Sean we met in this series. Who was the last Sean we met in this series? That, that was Tiffany's boyfriend who kept calling her stupid. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, we're both in Sandman, and we're both big creepos. <laughs> so that's... Yeah. Lyda thinks that Eric is just making this offer to try to get in her pants, but more importantly, she's not comfortable leaving Daniel alone to go to work. We have a, a panel here of Daniel with a white goatee of ice cream. Yeah. But it kind of shows us what little baby Daniel would look like with a white goatee. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it works for him. <laughs> he looks very wise. <laughs> yeah. Yes, he does. He does. <laughs> if anyone hurt him, Lyda says. If anything happened... Yeah, I know. If anything happened, you'd just die. I wouldn't die, Carla. If anyone hurt Daniel, I'd kill them. Okay, so now we know. That's... it's out there. Don't mess with your boy. And now we've come to the title page. We're on page eight before we get to the title. And it shows the castle. That was one cold-ass open. Frigid. Yeah. Ice cream cold. <laughs> That's right. Cow jumping up to the moon cold. 
We see Matthew flying up to the Dream Castle, and he asks the Guardians if Morpheus is in. Now, I want to remind our listeners once again that Matthew, as a bird, there's nothing supernatural about him being able to fly. Yeah. It is supernatural, however, that he is Swamp Thing antagonist Matthew Cable. Well, yeah. Not really an antagonist. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Sort of semi-unsympathetic supporting character. Yeah, okay. Anyway, he died in the pages of Swamp Thing, and he became Morpheus's Raven Matthew after death. So he wants to know if the boss is home. And that's why he says, Hi guys, is the boss home? He's pretty good at that. While he's here, though, he decides to chat with them on another subject. He asks how long they have been guarding. We were always as we are. A griffin, a wyvern, and a hippogriff. We are doorkeepers, Matthew. We take our strength and our authority from our lord. When he was imprisoned and powerless, so were we. This is setting up that Matthew is concerned about something that we're going to come back to. Right. What happens when he stops being the raven? Because there have been other ravens before who stopped being the raven for some reason. Yeah. So on his way into the palace, he's chatting with Merv. Hey, Matthew. How's it hanging? How's what hanging? I haven't had anything hanging since I was alive. Hey, no offense meant. It's just a figure of speech, you know? It's the kind of thing us guys say to each other. So... Merv has basically just explained that he feels he always has to perform masculinity. That's what—that's the reason why he behaves the way he does. Well, to be fair, Merv isn't really an entity so much as the concept of working man. Fair point. I like this here as he talks about the complaints he's been getting from Morpheus. Mervin built an ocean over here, knocked down that city under the willow tree over there, and incidentally, Mervin, this time remember that ice is customarily cold. Like, I don't have enough to do. I tell you, sometimes I could just tell him where to stick his goddamn job. Matthew asks if Merv remembers any of the previous ravens. Who has time, Merv says. Some of us have real jobs, Bertie. We can't all perch on the boss's shoulder, live in a cave, eat dead rats, and crap on the floor, right? Hey, listen, when you see the boss, you won't tell him what I said about the job. He'd, you know. I mean, we know I'm a kidder, and me, it's a guy thing. But he might, I don't know, take it the wrong way. So these pages are basically serving the same purpose as the castle story. They're introducing us to all the major denizens of the Dreaming and their concerns, setting the stage before things begin to change. Yeah. (laughs) Merv is, you know, he doesn't like that he has to install microwave ovens. (laughs) Yes, that is exactly who Merv Pumpkinhead is. Next up, Matthew chats with Noella. He asks why she's always cleaning, whether Morpheus asked her to do it. Right. I said that it was in the Vertigo Jam that she said that she isn't asked to, but she just does it anyway to make herself useful. But actually, she doesn't say that in that version of the story. She says it here. Right. Lord Morpheus has never asked anything of me. Then why do you do it? I have to do something. I want to point out that that was Matthew the Raven speaking just now, not Merv Pumpkinhead. But my voices for the two of them are exactly the same. I guess we know how you perform masculinity. (laughs) (laughs) I want to point out that Zuala is currently cleaning a stained glass window depicting a woman, which is kind of interesting. Maybe somebody of significance to Morpheus. It looks kind of like a woman with a blindfold, don't you think? Hmm. Justice? Yeah, that's that's what came to my mind. Now, in a major surprise, Matthew ends up chatting with Lucian. Well, he doesn't say Lush. That's one signal we get that the voices aren't exactly the same. Right, now Lucian is sitting here reading an unwritten play by John Webster. Called A Banquet for the Worms, which reminded me of A Feast for Crows. Yeah, yeah. Matthew asks if Lucian has any books on ravens, and of course Lucian says he's welcome to read them. 
and whether Lucian was anything else before he was the librarian. I don't think so, no. You don't think so? I can remember the title, author, and location of every book in this library, Matthew. Every book that's ever been dreamed. Every book that's ever been imagined. Every book that's ever been lost. Millions upon millions of them. That's what I remember. It's my job. Other things I forget sometimes. He's down by the shore, Matthew. Making nightmares. Yeah, and we next we get a close-up on some teeth, and we eventually see that those teeth are in somebody's eyeball hole, which, of course, immediately informs us that we are looking at the Corinthian. Yeah! Now, the Corinthian is deader than dead. Yeah, that's right. The Corinthian was a nightmare that Morpheus created a long, long time ago, who went rogue, and when Morpheus tracked him down in the, uh, in the waking world where he had gone into hiding, he tried to kill Morpheus. Wasn't much of a try, though, and Morpheus had to unmake him. Now he's making the Corinthian again. Why? asks Matthew. Why? I created the Corinthian to be the dark mirror of humanity, Matthew. Morpheus elaborates. A dark mirror. Imagine that you woke in the night and rose, and seemed to see before you another person, whom slowly you perceived to be yourself. Someone had entered in the night and placed a mirror in your sleeping place, made from a black metal. You had been frightened only of your reflection. But then the reflection slowly raised one hand, but your own stayed still. A dark mirror, that was always the intention. And with another metal line here. But the gulf between conception and execution is wide, and many things can happen on the way. I don't think I ever heard you talk so much. Not at one time. Aren't you worried? Matthew is worried that the Corinthian will try to kill Dream again. This one, Dream says, will be better. The last Corinthian was a fool. This one will not be. But sometimes, very rarely, dreams do go bad and have to be dealt with. Speaking of things that died, Matthew brings up something Delirium mentioned in the car back in Brief Lives. She said that there'd been eleven or twelve other ravens, remember? There have been rather more than that, Matthew. And she said that one of them went back to being a man again. You know, I was asking Eve what happens to us ravens in the end when we're not in the dreaming anymore. And she wouldn't tell me if she knew. Indeed, that is as it should be, Matthew. And without saying any more on the subject, Morpheus teleports him back to Eve's cave. Go now. I found him, Eve. We talked some. And? We talked, that's all. Listen, I don't want to talk about it. You're brooding, little raven. I said I don't want to talk about it. Honestly, men. So yeah, Matthew is worried about what happens if he dies again. Yeah, or even just gets fired. Maybe if you get fired from being Dream's Raven... The retirement plan is that you don't exist anymore. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. That would suck. So now we cut to a fancy restaurant, and we know it's fancy because it's called Lux. Yeah. Also, we know it's fancy because Lyda is wearing a very fancy dress to it. She is led in by a silent woman with a white mask over the left side of her face. That's important. Hello, I'm Lyda Hall. I'm expected. Mr. Needham is expecting me. Can't you talk? Now we meet Eric, they sit down. Eric is explaining that he likes Lux because it doesn't feel like L.A. For example, they have a no-cell-phone policy. Good old la-la land. People want to be seen in this town. Now Lyda notes that he, which is to say the piano man, is playing her late husband's favorite song, These Foolish Things. So, supposing you tell me all about yourself. I fucking hate that shit. That's the most diabolical interview question. <laughs> Like, just, I have no question, you just start talking? Yeah, but Lyda turns it around on him, countering that he knows all about her, hence the job offer, so he can tell her all about her. Yeah, and at this point, he does a little sidebar here, 
because the waitress shows up with the drinks, where he shows off that he's a real creepo. Yeah, he's tipping generously, but he's being a real prick about it. Twenties all for you, gorgeous. Spend it on something fun, okay? And then he says, Cool idea, huh? Silent waitresses. Who wants to hear women talk all the time? Hey, don't go putting words into my mouth, little lady. Not just women. People. So what's in the Lyda Hall dossier? We get a brief recap of the life of Lyda Hall. She was born in 1960 to the Greek superheroine The Fury, raised by Mr. and Mrs. Trevor. She was childhood sweethearts with Hector Hall, the Golden Age Sandman. She joined a superhero team with him, also under the name The Fury. Hector died in 1987, and then Lyda married him in 1988. That's out of the usual order. Anyway, she shows up two years later, still pregnant, no Hector, gives birth and raises baby Daniel. Now, my question about her biography is this. Do you think that the Trevors that raised her are Steve Trevor's mom and dad? After they sent him off to college, you know, they weren't ready for an empty nest yet, so... Oh my god, I hadn't thought of that, but that makes perfect sense. I mean, she's Greek, I think her mother might be part Amazon, so she is tied loosely to the Wonder Woman corner of the DCU. We'll have to check this out. Yeah. And basically that tells us what we need to know about Lyda, except maybe that the reason that Hector never came back from the dream world where they had been staying since he died is that Morpheus sort of dispelled the ghost of Hector and Lyda blames him for killing her husband, and he kind of mentioned that he thought he was owed baby Daniel. Yeah, he was real shitty about it. He was kind of like, This is my baby, but you raise it, I can't be bothered. But I'll come back and get it when I'm ready. Yeah. Yeah, he was kind of a dick about it. Yeah. What a DB. At this point, the comic book meanders off to focus on the piano man with his shock of red blonde hair. Yeah, who could that piano man be? Well, we'll really be wondering who he is in a minute. A portly guy with a mustache. And a checked suit. I want to point out he's wearing a checked suit. Yeah, okay. But he doesn't request, like, ska music or anything. (laughs) No. No, he asks for memories. Yeah, and the piano guy tells him that he's not playing any fucking cats. No, I'm afraid not. It is a song I find entirely devoid of interest. The melody is trite, while the awkward paraphrases of lesser Eliot poems in the lyrics are grating in the extreme. Yeah, he hates that song, but in light of how this man's evening ends, he says, he will play something appropriate. And he begins, sit down, you're rocking the boat. From Guys and Dolls. Yeah. Did you recognize this guy yet? Who the, who the piano guy is? Yeah. No, I don't know who he is. That's Lucifer. Satan who is the devil? Yeah, who do we know who has a shock of red blonde hair, is super handsome, likes things lit up, and kind of takes a little bit of delight in human suffering? Where do we see that he likes things lit up? Hmm? Lux. Oh, this is his place. Yeah, this is his place. Well, that explains why a big jerk like Eric Needham would eat here. <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. I don't know what's up with Eric Needham. I don't know if there is more to know about Eric Needham. But Lida even comments that his offer sounds like one that should be signed in blood. Right, yeah. Well, we should go back to that. Eric Needham has basically said that she can write her own job description and salary, and he'll sign it. He's just kind of desperate to have her working for him. Yeah, that's where Lida says the line about the kind of deal she ought to sign in blood, and at this point she gets a bad feeling. She leaps up from the table. I have to leave. There's something wrong. What do you mean there's something wrong? Can't it wait until after dinner? There's something wrong at home, Eric. Make them get me a taxi. Okay, look. You go and phone home from the lobby. 
Everything's okay. We'll finish our dinner like civilized people. If there's anything wrong, I'll drive you home. So in the space of two panels, she calls. There's no answer. Drive me home. Now. I don't know if it's suspicious or just kind of generally dickish, but even given that she's really worried about what's going on at home, Eric dilly-dally is tipping the waitress. Here you go, hun. This should cover it. And take something out of it for yourself, okay? Before he gets her in the car, and then he's driving really slow. What is it with this town? A little rain comes down, next thing you know, everybody forgets how to drive. Look at that guy. He can't be going faster than 15 miles an hour. I mean, it's just a little water. Eric, shut the... Just drive, okay? So, he drives like I do. <laughs> Constantly complaining about being held up by the guy in front of him. Well, a moment before that, Lyda is complaining about the slowness of his driving. Yeah, so he's kind I... of putting on a show of, oh, now I'm in a hurry. Well, we don't know that he was ever driving slow on purpose, though. She could be complaining that it's taking a long time because they're behind a slow car, which is what he's saying. Yeah, yeah. Or just generally showing that she's really impatient. I like the effect of the layouts on this couple of pages. This issue is almost all in six grids and nine grids. Here, as as light as bad feeling is, is intensifying, we get six grids that zoom in close on her face. And then on the next page, as events seem to be spiraling quickly out of control, we go to nine grids. Yeah, it's actually an eight-panel page. It's a nine grid where the last two are collapsed together. But we get a great, like, wordless or nearly wordless sequence of the car pulling up. She runs up the stairs. She has trouble getting the door open. And once she gets inside... Eric, he's gone. Daniel's gone. They took my baby. Where is my family? <laughs> yeah, I mean, same basic concept. That brings us to Sandman number 58, The Kindly Ones 2, written by Neil Gaiman, drawn by Mark Hempel, inked by Disraeli, with colors by Danny Vazo, and a cover by Dave McKeon. Now I'm assuming they mean Benjamin Disraeli. That's the name that he works under. <laughs> the cover of this issue, we have a heavily scarred man against a red backdrop. And it looks like there's a map there. I thought, I thought this was a sort of figure wrapped in thread, but maybe it's scarring. Superimposed over the, this person's head is a white flower. Yeah, we should probably look up what kind of flower that is and all the symbology of it. And a harder working podcast would do just that. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> You're working against us. <laughs> we open on Lyda in shell shock. And over her wide-eyed face, we are getting two ongoing stories. Right. The first is a news story about what happened to poor Vonda. Yeah, Harvey and Vonda, the couple who liked memories from cats. Yeah, nothing good ever comes of that. So it turns out that they were having a romantic evening in a rowboat. Harvey stood up, fell over, and drowned. The other thing that's going on is that Carla is on the phone with the cops. Yeah, demanding that the police make an appearance. They were called two hours ago. I just want to see some cops here. Right? Well, I don't like your attitude either, so that makes two of us. Carla says the police are finally on their way, and in the next panel, an indeterminate amount of time later, here they are. Yeah, we get a couple of Pinkerton <clears throat> fellows who come in the door. Well, this guy is Lieutenant Luke Pinkerton with the LAPD, and we meet his partner Gordy Fellows as well. Now, I just want to point out a couple of things here. Pinkerton is a uh, tall, skinny guy with wild red hair, and he's got a band-aid on his chin, and Pinkerton is a word that means detective. Yep. 
That's so, true. And he so even points that out. Significant name, yeah. He says Pinkerton, like the detective agency. Pinkerton. Uh, we learned that Lyda found the babysitter asleep on the floor. Still not finding out who that is. They ask if they can talk to the baby's father, and she replies, Sure, you got a Ouija board with you? He's dead? He's been dead a long time. I see. I'm sorry. Do you have any enemies? Is there anyone who showed any uh, undue interest in your son? No, nobody real. Pinkerton asks if this was her regular babysitter. She says she's hardly been out of the house in three years. She doesn't have a regular babysitter. But this is Wozy, and Wozy lives in the apartment downstairs, and Daniel is apparently a pretty big fan of Wozy. Hey, this outside door. All the locks have been messed up. Ma'am, I thought you said the doors were locked when you got here. These locks are destroyed. It looks like someone hit this door with a truck. Me. It wasn't a truck. The key got stuck, so I pushed. That was me. So Lyda's still got her super strength. Outside, the detectives are being seen off by Carla. Thanks for all your help, lady. Oh, they also kind of talk about Lyda's super strength. She's... she's very strong when she gets upset. Like the old Hulk TV show, you know? You wouldn't like me when I get angry. Yeah, Pinkerton says that there's no point in pestering them for information. Don't call us, we'll call you, basically. What if there's a ransom demand? Or if we find out anything on our own? Then you get in touch with us immediately. You've got my card? Yes. And ma'am, take care of your friend. I'll try. It's the least I can do. Now we cut to the Dream Castle, and that's where we get our title. A rider is approaching, and it's the Chloricon! The Chloricon? Yeah, sometimes they call him the Chloricon. Or just, just, just Chloricon. Well, right now it seems like Clora can't, because they tell him to stay on the path, and he immediately doesn't do that. <laughs> yeah, he says that he's not here as an envoy of fairy, he's on a personal visit to see his sister. And the guardians let him in with a weird caveat, that he's only allowed in on the understanding that he is solely responsible for his actions. Yeah, so if somehow you fuck up walking from one place to another, don't expect Morpheus to pull your ass out of the fire. Yeah, that's basically right. Also, stay on this path. <laughs> stay on the goddamn path, you drunk. <laughs> yeah. And he won't do that because he's fucking belligerent. <laughs> so he finds a mirror, and in the mirror he sees a young-looking Morpheus clad all in white. Oh, I thought that was death. Oh, fair enough. It gestures to its mouth, and then it turns into a cat and walks away. And Chloricon also points to his mouth, he sticks his hand in his mouth, and he pulls out a whole freaking deer! <laughs> well, the buck starts here. <laughs> God damn it. He's kind of kneeling here in a pool of blood and vomit that has been left behind as an entire stag has just jumped out of his mouth. Yeah, this whole thing takes two silent pages to play out, and it is intense. It looks really painful. Yeah, he barfs up that stag really hard. The stag looms over Clericon, but Nuala shows up and yells at him. Not the stag, the Clericon. That was your nemesis. You've created your nemesis. How could you? You have to keep to the proper paths in this place. It's raw dream stuff. It's dangerous. I... I meant no harm. I was curious. I... I'm sorry. Truly sorry. It was a most stupid thing to do. So they go to Nuala's room to talk, and on the door of Nuala's room, there's a little super deformed Nuala-shaped door knocker. Which is pretty great. Oh, is that what that is? Okay. There's a normal wooden door which they open to enter a beautiful sylvan glade. So at least she's got the comforts of home. Who did your decorating? Clara Khan asks. 
The Lord Shaper gave me these quarters. He had the palace crew make them look like this. It was kind of him. Cloricon asks for wine, and Nuala wishes he wouldn't drink so much. Which makes sense. A Cloricon is a fairy that steals liquor. He changes the subject. Nuala, some months ago I visited you in my dreams. You sent Lord Shaper to free me from some bother I was in. Really? I... Anyway, shortly after that I found myself caught in a... storm. I took refuge in the Inn at the End of All Worlds. It's one of the four free houses. I have heard of the place. Yeah, I think this is the first time we're hearing that the Inn at World's End is one of four. Mm, yeah. So that's an interesting tidbit. Cloricon continues, And I saw certain things there. Now he'd rather not say what things, but he adds that although he's here unofficially, he has a message from Titania. It's time for Nuala to come home. He starts reminiscing about how back when she was beautiful, not now, mind you, she used to be merciless to the men that she attracted. Yeah, he refers to her as La Belle Dame Saint Merci, which is an 1819 poem by John Keats about a fairy mistress who is beautiful but cold and distant, a very different personality than the Nuala we've seen. Thuricon carries on about how wonderful it'll be when she's home. Nuala looks nauseous. She's obviously not sure about going back to fairy, and over the next few pages she's going to make some excuses to sort of try and get out of it. It's not that easy, Cloricon. You gave me to Lord Shaper. Well, Our Lady did. Well, you both did. I'll tell him that our queen won't mind. They're old friends. More than that, perhaps, if you listen to the palace gossip. While we're at it, I could ask him to destroy the Wild Heart. Yeah, so he's just kind of casually tossing off the idea that uh, Morpheus might, you know, if he happens to mention it, destroy his nemesis for him. Yeah, but Nuala says it doesn't work that way. Cloricon is the only one who can fight the nemesis. And it's probably not even in the dreaming anymore. She goes on to say, The Shaper won't let me go. I know him. He'll say no, Cloricon. Well then, let's go and ask him. Back in Lyda's apartment, Carla is sleeping on the couch and is woken by a scream from Lyda's bedroom. Turns out Lyda had a bad dream, and then we cut to the dream. She dreamt that she woke up in bed much like she just did, but she heard people talking downstairs, and she knew that there were witches downstairs. Real witches, the kind who would eat your heart. She's really scared, but she has to get up. She goes downstairs, but she doesn't find her downstairs anymore. It's the Hecate's basement, or somebody's creepy basement anyway. I didn't know that there was a downstairs here. There's downstairs in everybody. That's where we live. Everybody has a black bug room, and this one is yours. So she asks if they are going to hurt her. They explain that, yes, they are going to hurt her, but they're also going to help her. Hurt you? Of course we're going to hurt you. Everybody gets hurt. But we're also going to help you, my popsy. Your babby has been stolen from you, after all. Yeah, at this point the maiden calls her young lady, and she snaps, Young lady? Me? Jesus, like, how old are you, bimbo? Doesn't somebody also call her granddaughter? Yes, that's right, and that's important because her mother is Fury, and these are the Furies. Ah, well, there you go. She yells at the Maiden, and the crone corrects her that they are all the same being, and at this point, Lyda has asked three questions and received three answers. Which isn't really true. Right. She has asked three questions, if you count, but they haven't all been answered, I don't think. Yeah, and the Maiden concedes that they did not answer, where is Daniel, did you take him? 
Daniel's been taken from you. You've met already those who took him. Where is he right now? They're going to put him in the fire, my little diddly pout. So at this point, they start trying to put her into their cauldron, which is when she starts screaming, and that brings us back to the bedroom. Yeah. I want to mention here that Crone offers her a pork pie that's covered in mud, and when she objects, the Crone says, Everyone's got to eat a peck of dirt before they die. I just wanted to point that out, because I heard that one a lot growing up. <laughs> yeah, we, we were told that. We grew up together, because we're brothers. I guess we have we don't cover that in every episode. <laughs> Previously on the Voter Guys. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Carla is a good person to have around in a crisis. She makes coffee. Coffee tastes good. Well, I'm going to disagree with you there, but it's useful to have in a crisis. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I said we returned to the bedroom, but actually we cut to the kitchen where they are discussing what has just happened. Lida, honey, I wonder, maybe those witches in your nightmare were your subconscious trying to tell you something. I don't trust dreams. They said they weren't dreams. So? Dreams lie. And do you think this dream was lying to you? Carla, they said they'd come and see me again. They said Daniel was on fire. And to tell you the truth, I don't know which scares me more. Okay, so Nuala and Cloricon are looking for the Lord Shaper, which is Morpheus. Yeah, not a lot happens on this page of any note. They're just kind of looking for Morpheus, but they do run across a guy with a rabbit head who they call Ruthven. Or, no, I guess his lady that's with him calls him Ruthven. I wondered if this was supposed to be like Alice and the White Rabbit grown up and got married. It doesn't matter. They meet a couple of weird people in the palace who tell them that you can't find an audience with the Lord Shaper by looking for one. But Ruthven, that name has some significance. Oh, fuck, you're right. Ruthven Sykes, the mystic who stole... The Dreamstone. Yeah, yeah. In the first issue. It seems very unlikely to me that Morpheus turned that guy into an immortal rabbit that lives in the dreaming. It's either that or believe that there are two different guys in this series named fucking Ruthven. Well, it seems possible that Neil Gaiman likes the name Ruthven. <laughs> I guess, I, yeah, okay, I guess that's possible. But I read this as like, okay, Ruthven Sykes lives in the dreaming now. And is a rabbit. Yes, well... And Matthew's a raven, you know. <laughs> Shit happens. <laughs> yeah. Seems like he should have gone to hell, though. Well, but we know that, that Morpheus can can sort of intercept people on their way to hell and take them into the dreaming if he wants to. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Anyway, uh, the advice was totally wrong, because they're looking for Morpheus and they find him. They find the throne room. Nuala cautions that the door is closed and she's never seen it closed before. So, we can always knock on it. I don't think he'd like that. Nonsense! Thut, thut, thut. Hola, Lord Shaper. It is I, the Chloricon, Duke of the Yarrow and the Flay. Furin Captain of all the Goals, also envoy and extraordinary to Her Majesty the Queen of Fairy. I am here with my sister, the Lady Nuala, currently in your service. We desire audience. See? Nothing happened. Now, let us return to my quarters and... Oh. Oh, dear. The door cracks open, and they go inside. They find an empty throne, but the next thing you know, Morpheus is sitting upon it. I wrote, Cluricon's plan worked. Yeah, and then Morpheus repeats Cluricon's address back at him, which I thought was kind of funny. Good day, Lord Shaper. And to you, Duke of the Yarrow and the Flay, Fioran, Captain of all the Goals, also envy and extraordinary to Her Majesty the Queen of Fairy. Why are you here, Cluricon? So, Chloricon says he's here to get Nuala out. He mentions their last meeting. This is during 
World's End when Morpheus had sort of broken him out of prison. And he says that, As you said to me when last we spoke, sire, she has a good heart. I said that to you, Clericon? Yes, sire. Well, it is a truth. Morpheus explains that he has a fondness for the fairy folk. Although they have a different code than he does, he enjoys that they live by a code. He also has a fondness for Clericon because he finds him amusing. Right, he appreciates that they are bound by rules, but he points out he is not bound by their rules. I noticed you stepped off my path when you came to this place. I did that thing, sire. I apologize. It was a most foolish thing to do. Sire, I uh, inadvertently freed an animal when I did that. I was wondering if you ran into it. If it's not too much trouble, possibly you could... Destroy your nemesis, Clericon? No. It is no longer in the dreaming, and it is not mine to destroy. Is that the favor you wish to ask of me? No, sire. The Lady Nuala. She was a gift to you from my queen. I have come to ask if she can return to fairy with me. I see. And what does the Lady Nuala say about all this? I... You've been very kind, sir. For the last three years, I... Sir, I am yours. What you wish is also what I wish. Okay, so that is some hella layered dialogue right there. Go on. Nuala doesn't want to say so in front of Cloricon, but of course she'd rather stay than go back to Fairy. So that's one reason why she seems to, to make the show of leaving it in Morpheus's hands. Another read, I kind of think that Nuala has a bit of a thing for Morpheus, and so when she says, I am yours, and what you wish is what I wish, that's what she's implying. Hmm. The story that appeared in Vertigo Jam seems to imply that she's actually quite homesick. It's true. So uh, I'm maybe not 100% sure on your reading here that she really wants to stay in the dreaming and that all her hesitance here is out of a desire to weasel out of going home. I think maybe in part that hesitation is actually just fear of Morpheus because he's a scary guy. You think she's really just afraid to ask him? Could be. Or that at least could be a factor. In any case, Morpheus asks if Titania has asked for Nuala back. Cloricon says essentially she hasn't officially asked, but she'd really like Nuala back. Speaking informally, I can state that Her Majesty would view the idea of the return of the Lady Nuala with unmixed pleasure. Hmm. The palace staff are my responsibility, Cloricon. You are responsible for many things, sire. Yes. Morpheus considers for two panels, in one of which he's looking rather downcast. Very well. You may return to Fairy Nuala. Is there anything you wish to take with you? She has a very small... What? As if she never expected it to go this way. Is there anything you wish to take away with you, Nuala? No. I would like to formally thank you for your service these last three years. Give me your pendant. He touches it, which makes it glow. There, for your service, a gift. If in need, hold the stone with both hands and call me. I will come to you. You may have one boon. Oh. You desire more than that? Oh. No, thank you, sir. That's very kind. Now, this pendant, it should be pointed out, is the one that she was given by Morpheus's ex-girlfriend in Brief Lives as a thanks for her service. Right. The one that she didn't think she would be allowed to keep because it would remind Morpheus of his ex, but he allowed it at the end of the story. As they leave, Clericon notes, Nuala, Nuala, you're crying. He, he didn't even try to fight for me, brother. He didn't care if I stayed or I went. Exactly, and I cannot tell you how relieved I am. 
Now, let's go home. Well, what's your take on that? It didn't seem to me like Morpheus didn't care that she was going. I mean, he goes out of his way to give her a formal thanks for her service, he enchants her necklace, and he says that he owes her one boon. That's practically gushing. Morpheus. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's a valid point. This is the guy. This is the guy who said, Do something. Why would I do something? <laughs> Repeatedly. <laughs> no, he's definitely got some stuff going on, and exactly why he chooses to send Nuala away will be something that we can talk about in the context of future issues in the story. Suffice to say that Morpheus has got wheels within wheels, and when he looks away as he's deciding what to do. He's got a couple of concerns on his mind. The last time he had wheels, he let Delirium drive them. Oh no, that's a bad idea. Yeah. But Nuala is clearly upset not to have been fought for, to have been let go, which is not how she was hoping that meeting was going to go. Yeah, maybe she was hoping to stay after all. Okay, that brings us to Sandman number 59. The Kindly Ones 3. Same credits. The cover of this one portrays kind of a strange forest with a weird misshapen tree, and there's a girl's face. Yeah, I have written a grave with a face at the top. Oh yeah, there also seems to be either like a stone arch or a tombstone, depending on whether you look at it inverted or not. So we open on a scene here of two characters, and it's a while before the art makes this clear, but one of them is Robin Goodfellow. The Puck. Yeah. A fairy who we met in Midsummer Night's Dream. That's right, and the other is Loki of the Norse Pantheon. Now, they are making a fire. I want to mention this piece of meta-dialogue. I think it's going to be bigger than I had planned. <laughs> You keep pointing these out. I, I never thought of any of them that way, but yeah, okay. So they're building a fire and pulling on a silver thread. Actually, Loki seems to get tired of trying to light the fire. He just points at it and goes, Foomph! But yeah, Puck's got this silver thread that he's pulling on. Yeah, he's pulling on this silver thread, and he says, Or ever the silver cord be loosed, we'll both be up to our necks in shit, eh? Which I didn't get. That's a really weird phrase. Yeah, well, they'll be in big trouble if the thing they're pulling on with that thread gets away. Okay. Now, at the mention of being up to his neck and shit, Loki replies, I did that once. They made a saga about it. What? Keep pulling him in and I'll tell you about it. True story. Now, okay, Loki tells a very funny story, which he is going to use a few more words than I would. Basically, one time he convinced Thor that Thor was pregnant. Right, he put a uh, cork in Thor's ass, and Thor pushed and pushed, when eventually Ratatosk, the squirrel god, came along and pulled the cork out, shit exploded everywhere. But Thor picked up the squirrel and said, You're ugly, you're hairy, and you're covered in shit, but you're mine and I love you. <laughs> now, Robin Goodfellow at first makes a face and then laughs his ass off at this. I do want to mention this line as he's explaining why he pulled this ruse on Thor. 
Because it amused me to do so, I told him it was the cure for his condition, then I went off to sleep with his wife. Oh! She wasn't much of a lay, but it amused me to know that it would destroy him if he ever found out. So, Loki's a prankster, but he's also a real shitbag. <laughs> Dickish. Yeah, I, I also no- made a note here of the fact that he said that when the cork came out, Thor's diarrhea thundered forth. <laughs> right, because he's Thor! Right. So at this point, they finish pulling the thread, and at the end of it is little baby Daniel, who was kidnapped two issues ago. And he's not even tied up. He's just holding the other end of the thread. Yeah, so I assumed that this silver cord was, like, connecting his soul to his body in some way. I suppose they could do that. Anyway, it's what they pulled on to get Daniel here. And he seems to have acquired a phoenix feather in the intervening period. Yeah, that's weird, too. He is still holding the phoenix feather when they stick him on the fire that they have just built. And I wrote... Well, that's not right. You're not supposed to do that with babies. No, definitely not. Now, young man, onto the nice fire, Loki says. And Daniel looks mildly troubled by all this. Yeah, as I would be. Well, Well, no, I wouldn't look. There'd be nothing mild about it. (laughs) That's that's kind of what I'm getting. I'd be very cross. (laughs) He'd be most upset. He is looks so sad to be on a fire. Oh, it's so sad. Don't do that to babies. And we find ourselves on Earth in winter. There's a graveyard, and a man is approaching one fresh grave. Hello, love. It's me, Bobby. You realize soon enough that... And that explains why it's snowing. This is Bobby Drake, Iceman. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yep. (laughs) We're going to realize pretty shortly that Bobby is, in fact, Hob Gadling. He no longer goes by Hob, because it is no longer 1389. He's here visiting a lost love who was apparently killed by a car two days ago. I do think you're listening to me from somewhere. I mean, I've seen too much over the years to believe that it starts and ends with bodies. There's something around before bodies start, something around after they rot. Somebody once told me you don't really die until everyone that you knew is dead, too. Think of all the people I'm keeping alive, eh? (sighs) I don't know. I don't remember what you smell like. You've been gone two days, and I don't remember how you smelled. You didn't smell like anyone else. I liked the way you smelled. I... I miss you a lot. Now that she's gone, he tells Audrey, what he never told her in life, apparently, that he is 630 years old, or maybe 635. He muses on about the people that he's lost. The centuries he spent thinking life was all about eating and fighting and sex. Mostly sex. But eventually he realized sex was kind of boring without someone you wanted to spend time with. He also says, I even told you how not to die. You thought I was joking. There's never been a woman believe me yet. Or a man, for that matter. Audrey, it turns out, was his first love since Peggy, who died during the Blitz. It never gets any easier. People you love not being there anymore. Now, as he exits the graveyard, he encounters Morpheus. Yeah, Morpheus is here to be a friend, completely uninvited. Hello, you. What are you doing here? I came to talk with you, Hobgadling. Yeah? Well, let's get out of this bloody snow, then. There's a pub over the road. And we see the name of the pub is Faith, Hope, and Charity, and the... The shingle outside shows three women. Inside, Morpheus wants to order dark mead, but (laughs) Hob says that in this day and age, that would go over about as well as asking for sack. (laughs) I'm going to have a scotch. You want one? Whatever you think fit. Meanwhile, we catch up with some of the other Endless. 
In his garden, Destiny finds himself leaving a trail of ghost books. He also sees himself standing on a bridge. It was no surprise to him. It was written in his book that he would see himself. But still, it gave him a chill to see him there. Elsewhere, Desire closes off its realm. Its sigil turns to a black void in the other galleries. And when Despair realizes Desire has cut itself off, she sat making small noises in the mirrored mist. They were always close. Yeah, she's also letting rats chew on her. Meanwhile, Delirium has turned into a fish choir. <laughs> yes, she was up until this point a 111 multicolored fish. But transforming back into a human, it occurs to her that it would be nice to have a dog. And then she remembers she used to have one. She was given a dog, Barnabas, by her brother Destruction at the end of Brief Lives. And has gone and lost him. Yeah, that's kind of important. Well, I mean, I don't know if it'll be important to this story, but somebody gives you a dog, you should really keep track of where that dog is. I also like the bit here about how she can't, when she's putting herself back together, she can't remember which eye to put the silver flecks in. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so she is setting out to find her missing dog, and we're getting a very vague sense at this point that big stuff is starting to happen and the other endless are starting to see portents of it. Back in the pub... Morpheus is fiddling with the skull of the Corinthian. Oh, so he is. This is all that was left when he unmade the Corinthian at the end of the doll's house. Hob recalls Morpheus giving him a hundred-year-old bottle of wine in a dream, which he woke up with in bed. This happened at the beginning of Brief Lives when Morpheus was setting out on his journey to find destruction. Yeah, he said he wasn't going to make it to their regular meeting, right? Yeah. Morpheus is sorry for Hobbes' loss, and Hobbes sort of idly asks if he could bring her back. Couldn't you bring her back? Or could you go back in time and make her stop and look before she ran across the road? Could you make the bloke driving the van in a little less of a hurry? No, I will not do these things. Well, what can you do, then? I could make it that you dreamed of her each night, but you would not thank me for that. No, I wouldn't. He talks about dreams a little bit, about dreaming of his one of his other lost wives, and he says, Dreams are tricky buggers. You can't trust them. This is like the second or third time somebody has said something like that. Yeah. Maybe you could track down the bastard who was driving the van, just hit her and drove off as fast as his little wheels could carry him. And what should I do with him when I find him? I do not recommend revenge. It tends to have repercussions. I suppose I just want him to know who he killed. What Audrey meant to me. Why she was a good person. Why she made me happy when she smiled. Very well. It is done. I should not have come here. Now, I wondered if he means that their conversation is done, or if he made that guy know all that stuff. No, I think he's doing that as a favor to Hob. Okay. The Morpheus leaves in a bit of a hurry, and Hob... You're going? Already? Are you in trouble? No. Then what's wrong? There is nothing wrong. So Morpheus leaves... But Hob catches up and yells, Hoy! He says that in all his years he's learned to detect the smell of death. Now Morpheus stinks of it. I worry. You take care of yourself. Thank you, Hob. I shall. And Morpheus has a very slight smile as he disappears. He's standing here. At first he's like a black silhouette interspersed with little dots of snow. And then he's kind of fading away by the snow. And then in the last panel where he's gone... It's just totally white, and we see that he has been frozen away by the powers of the mutant known as Iceman. 
shouldn't have bought ice cream. He's a mega level. Yeah. He's real good, especially once he's learned the Emma Frost techniques of being Iceman. Oh my god, that's a deep cut. Yeah, that's a good comic book. I got that one. Elsewhere we find Lyta shopping. She's trying to be strong for Daniel. This is a really effective page as we are zoomed in super tight on Lyta's face, barely able to make out her surroundings. She is barely aware of what's going on around her. Yeah, but there is like all sorts of like flashy, colorful supermarket shit behind her. She's aware that she's narrating herself in her head. She passes the nursery rhyme man and wonders if he took Daniel. Who saw him die? I, said the fly, with my little eye. I saw him die. That's the rhyme that the flower guy happens to be reciting as she walks by. She gets home and Eric comes over to tell her the job is still open when she's feeling better. Now, he asks if she'd like to have a man around. He'd be proud to be there for her in her time of trouble, he says. He touches my neck, and I don't want him touching my neck, so I move his arm away, and there's a crunching noise, and he starts saying I've broken his arm bone, and he winds up going off in an ambulance. And we get some funny art here of, like, him looking at his arm in horror and making a goofy face. Yeah. But apparently this incident is too much for Carla. Carla has finally had enough, and we get a very mean Carla face as she is apparently yelling at Lyta. Yeah, the art is getting increasingly weird and abstract. In this panel, Carla is kind of a screaming triangle, and at the bottom of the page we see Lyta gradually transitioning into a uh, sad chalk drawing of a person. Right. So Carla decides not to stay another night. Lyta doesn't sleep, she just listens to cars, and her heart breaks with everyone that isn't the police bringing Daniel back. But she doesn't cry. I must be strong for Daniel. Yeah, being strong is apparently freaking out over the sound of cars and not sleeping. So we get a kind of stream of consciousness narration as we see how she passes the day watching television, watching the sky change colors, not sleeping, not eating. And finally, after a night that lasts forever, I watch the purple darkness fade into twilight, and the eastern sky swim with blood and salmon. Red sky in the morning, sailor's warning. I read somewhere that you can go crazy if you don't get any sleep, but I'm doing fine, feeling just fine, and everything's clear as crystal. I'm not even hungry. And then the roar of cars gets loud and steady enough that I can't tell the sounds of individual cars anymore, so in the end, the sound of the doorbell takes me by surprise. She opens the door, leaving the chain locked. And it's Detectives Pinkerton and Fellows. It's Startsky and Hutch. They reveal that they recovered a body, but it's quite badly burned. They say fingerprints and footprints identify it as Daniel. They don't want her to see the photo they have. But she demands that they show her the photograph anyway. Yeah, now I wondered about this photograph. It looks pretty horrific, but I'm not sure if it's meant to be a photograph of a burnt baby, or if it looks more like a drawing of a baby that's literally been scribbled on. And I don't mean to be criticizing the art there. I'm wondering if there's something weird about this photo. I think it's actually supposed to be a photo of a burned child, but the way that this artist draws everything is kind of scribbly. Okay, so that's just stylized. Right. Lyta asks the detectives to leave, and she slams the door. I wrote down Mojave. What does somebody say about the Mojave? Is that where they found the body? Oh, yep, it was found by a hiker out in the Mojave Desert. It looks like he must have been placed on a fire. That's a very specific way of putting it. In black and white, moderately abstract art, Lyda walks back into the living room. She can hear one voice in her head narrating, and another just screaming. 
And there's another saying nothing at all. <laughs> that's interesting. There's a third voice that's silent. Yes, the silence over the Waystone Inn is in three parts. That's what came to my mind as well. Damn you, Patrick Rothfuss, for the fact that you're never going to finish that series. Lyda closes her eyes to hide from the image, but then another one pops into her head. Her meeting with Morpheus, way back in Sandman number 12. The child you have carried so long in dreams. That child is mine. Take good care of it. One day I will come for it. But, but you can't, my baby. I will see you again, Hippolyta. Until then, farewell. This is kind of a fusion of Chris Bacallo's art from that issue and Mark Hempel's art from this issue. Kind of midway between them in style. My note says, that was a douchey speech. (laughs) She remembers another time. Calm yourself, Hippolyta. You have nothing to fear from me. Today. I have come to see your son. That is all. This was just before leaving for hell in Sandman number 22, at the beginning of Season of Mists. And she remembers the promise she made to Morpheus. You take my child over my dead body, you spooky bastard. Over my dead body. She has to be strong for Daniel. And she hears another voice, or another three, telling her she must be strong. Oh, that I were a man, or that I had power to execute my apprehended wishes. I would whip some with scorpions. And a voice says, you know what you must do. She grins. And it's true. I know exactly what I must do. So yeah, it seems like she's made up her mind to kill old Morpho. Yeah. Which, I mean, understandable. She has every reason to think that he's the kidnapper, and he was a big old dickbag to her on multiple occasions. Yeah, yeah, and had made it clear that he intended to take this baby from her at some point, and now that Daniel has disappeared, there's every reason to think that he did it. Yeah, it's almost like he framed himself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we know who took Daniel. Yes, so Loki and Robin Goodfellow. Or at least they received Daniel after somebody else took him, perhaps. Yeah, they were in receipt of the stolen baby. Right. He's not really a baby anymore. He's more of a tyke. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) He's He's a little tyke. So what do you think that they stole that baby for? To set a series of events into motion which will result in Morpheus getting dead. Okay, okay. So you you think it's fair to say that they predicted this outcome? That they set him up in a frame? Yeah, I mean, that would seem to be the motivation. There's some kind of war going on. The oldest conflict the will start again. The battle starts again, yeah. Yeah, and it's not just Morpheus who's in the crosshairs. Because weird shit is happening to all the Endless. Yeah, that's true. We can kind of guess what's going on with Desire. Right? Desire had a plan. Desire had a plan to make Morpheus spill family blood. Which he did at the end of Brief Lives. Right. And now that he has, there are repercussions coming. Yeah, so Desire may have sealed itself up in its realm to await the outcome of those events in safety. Yeah, now I don't know anything about why killing Orpheus would mean that there has to be a big war between the Endless and the Fairies. But maybe that's what's going on? Fairies? Well, the Queen of the Fairies, when she heard about the funeral procession from Clericon, sent him to get Nuala back. Mm, yeah. And Robin Goodfellow is also involved in this plot mm-hmm. somehow. Although I guess he's estranged from the rest of the fairy realm. Right, well, so here's the thing about, about Loki and about Puck. 
is that in the issues we saw them, Puck in the one-shot Midsummer Night's Dream issue, and Loki in Season of Mists, when he was one of the envoys from Benar's Pantheon to, right. to buy hell from Morpheus, they both ended up freed from their respective pantheons. Right. Puck disguised himself as a human actor and got away, and Loki, he arranged a trick by which I think another god, I think Susanoo, was sent yeah. back, to, back to the Norse prison in his place. Right. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. both of them have sort of escaped from where they belong, and both of them have done so sort of with the help of Morpheus, or at least the tacit consent. Yeah. But nonetheless, the Queen of the Fairies, Titania, wanting Nuala, made me think that she wants to grill Nuala, basically for intelligence on the dreaming. Okay. So I thought maybe a big war between the fairies and the Endless, but I don't know. Yeah, we'll see where that goes. But yeah, good comic books. Really interesting story stuff going on here. Like, well-told story, but also, like, there's just a lot of layers, a lot of threads. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool stuff. Also, Lucifer. He's around. Yeah, a lot of characters that we've met being set up uh, as involved with this story, if only peripherally. This is a story that's got a lot of moving parts, and some of them are going to turn out to be key plot details, and some of them are going to turn out to be checking in with characters that we like, essentially. Fan service. <laughs> yeah. The new definition of fan service. Yeah, this is, I think this is a good story and quite an achievement once it's complete, but it is going to take its time. We are three issues into a 13-issue story. Right. Well, three and like a sixth issues. Oh, in, yeah, if you come into thir Into 13 and a sixth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are you excited to see what happens next? Totally. All right, yet more of the kindly ones in our next Sandman issue, but join us next week as Hellblazer delves into a couple of remarkable lives. Vertigize is written and hosted by me and Sean. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Sean produces the show. I handle social media. If you like our show, you should check out our website, vertigize.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. If you want to get in touch with us, and we certainly hope you do, you can reach Eric on Twitter at Vertigize, and you can reach me at BlankCastSean. Our email address is vertigize at gmail.com. If you want to send us any questions, we'd be happy to read and answer those on the air. If you want to send us tips about what you'd like to see after we wrap up the big three, or if you just want to chat about comic books. We also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash vertigize. If you could interact with the Apple Podcast app or whatever podcast technology you're using to hear this show in such a way as to leave us a positive rating or review, we'd certainly appreciate that. Helps others to find the show. Or just tell your friends about Vertiguys. Right. Spread the word in person among your peer group. <laughs> <laughs> but as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. I have often flirted with the idea that we should make Daredevil an honorary Vertigo comic. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's really dark, mm. and there's some great comic books that have come out under the Daredevil title okay. recently. And we both like Daredevil. Daredevil number one, a new, a new run of Daredevil started this week. And it was almost a, hey, Sean, read this. But then I was like, that's not a very good comic. It's against the he rules. Can't, he can't, can't do it. <laughs> he just, like, have written Vertigo across the top of the plastic. <laughs> right, right, yeah, it was like, Vertigo. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
Comics presents. They got a new logo, I guess. And it's not on the cover itself. 